When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. Welcome back to Bob Dylan Book Month. Welcome. Bob Dylan Book Month is lasting for two months, <laughs> maybe three, but a good read can take a while, as you know. Now, we started with the visions of America of Bob Dylan and Philip Roth and are now digging into the Dylan bookshelf itself. I have a bookcase full of rock and roll biographies and autobiographies. I'm not sure I'm proud of that. Some of it simply supports vicarious living. Having lived a fantasy life as a rock star as a young fella, just like some of you, perhaps, like trying to play a long stone with a favorite album and imagining being there. Last waltz, anyone? Some of it is is a bit Madame Defarge, the knitting together of strands of gossip and collaborations and odd circumstances that combined to offer something like a singular mosaic of the rock and roll era. Who played with whom? What were they thinking? Who took what drugs or slept with which lovers or found themselves for unexpected reasons, for pleasure and creation and any number of other reasons as they crisscrossed the globe. That's how I know about Tom Waits and the replacements commandeering a studio together once, and I'm certain that my life is better for it. Now, of all of the memoirs and biographies and autobiographies on my rock and roll bookshelf, none matches Bob Dylan's Chronicles Volume 1. And as the next chapter of Bob Dylan Book Month, we are going to chronicle it. So here's the plan for Bob Dylan book month or months. As I said, Roth and Dylan are in the can if you wish to go back and reread them. Today is Chronicles Volume 1. Next, 
will come Griel Marcus's brilliant folk music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. And finally, we will look at Dylan's own A Philosophy of Song. Pending a conversation with a special guest or two along the way, we'll be wrapping up the story of this podcast with a final look at About Man and God-in-Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. That's my book, and it's available right now at fine bookstores or on the internets near you. If we're already talking books and Dylan chronicles and volumes, let's talk about the book of the Lord. (laughs) There are two books of Chronicles in the Bible, Chronicles 1 and Chronicles 2. They're kind of like greatest hits of the Old Testament, re-recorded without the original artist, the sound compressed many, many years after the original recordings. They are retellings of the entirety of the Israelite history, much like Deuteronomy. Literally, the retelling in Greek, essentially a review with some notable changes of the first four books of the Bible that preceded it. Dylan's Chronicles offer a great deal of recycling and compression and retellings and notable changes too. But the book Chronicles also represents values and practices that explain how Dylan works as an artist across fields of all of the endeavors in which he is engaged as an artist, what matters to his work, and why he matters to us. Dylan's Chronicles is an exemplar of a particular wisdom Dylan comes to teach, a simple one that applies to everything he does and It's probably not the wisdom you expect, but we are here to tell and retell you all about it in our Chronicles of Chronicles. I am your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome back to Bob Dylan Book Month. As another bookish rocker once said, get your pens and notebooks ready. It's just about time for us to begin. This is Chapter 6 of Season 3 of Bob Dylan, about man and God and law, chronicling Bob Dylan's Chronicles. Look, he's crawling up my wall Black and hairy, very small Dylan's first book was Tarantula, a surreal, playful, weird, caustic, solipsistic romp of a collection of words, written in 1966 and published officially only six years later. Though bootleg copies had floated around for years in between, it's a book of, quote, tiddlywinks and finks in the sinks, Juicy roses to coughing hands. You fill your hat with rum and heave it into the face of the hailstone. Popeye squirm. Unquote. 
This is a taste of the language of tarantula. Now, we begin with tarantula because it shows just how much Dylan delights in upsetting conventions as a creator. It's a book riding the spirit of a line from Desolation Road that I've probably quoted more than any other to explain not only what Dylan is about, but what all art, all great art, is about, at least to me. I had to rearrange their faces and give them all another name. Faces the surface, the mask, to rearrange what we see. Is this to obfuscate what's underneath, or rather to go deeper? Here in Tarantula, the faces are the words, and they are stretched and disassociated and co-located into syntax that doesn't fit a typical standard, though William S. Burroughs or perhaps James Joyce might be models There is all kind of emotion flowing through Tarantula, though, cryptic as it may be. It's still grasping at a kind of alignment through the rearrangement of faces, that rearranging of the familiar and the expected use of words. The surface of things does not hold. What you see is not what you get in this book. Something is happening here, and it's not clear if even Dylan knows what it is. It's not clear that he cares. He wants to give something another name, maybe language itself, expression, pushing limits. It's got shades of folk as a constant reiteration of catchphrases and mythic-sounding characters, but it doesn't want to tell a linear narrative. The lesson is in the media, which is head-spinning and then head-scratching sometimes. It's, It's just wanting to emote, to blow up sentences and punctuation. Yet gems are buried within. Here's how Robert Christigau, who reviewed Tarantula when it was released in 1972, responded to it. His famous surrealism, Christigau wrote in The Village Voice, owes as much to Chuck Berry or Breton or even Corso. And even though his imagery broadened the horizons of songwriting, it was only a background for the endless stream of epigrams which songwriters call good lines, flowing into our language, some already cliches, the times they are a-changing. You know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters. But such talk accedes to the temptation of placing Dylan's work in a page context, always a mistake. Literature may have engendered the Dylan mystique, but rock and roll nurtured it. Remember those lines because we've heard them over and over again, often not really listening, but absorbing the rhythm of unpoetic distortion just the same. Tarantula may contain similar gems, but we'll never know they're there, because Tarantula will never be an album. The wonderful letters, the funny bits, as well as the dreary, vaguely interesting stuff, and the failed doomsday rhetoric, all will go. More and more, Dylan affirms the value of the popular and the sensual over the verbal. This book will find its way into A.J. Weberman's Dylan Concordance and doubtless become a cult item, but it is a throwback by his records. That's Robert Christigau reviewing Tarantula in the Village Voice. Now, I don't take Christigau's extreme view. The books and art and interviews Dylan creates and curates illuminate the music at the core. For thinking about Dylan's books in particular, for thinking about Dylan as a writer, 
Maybe it's best to think of his practice more than anything else. Here in Tarantula, he's practicing writing, thinking, feeling, messing with us, rearranging faces. And not for practice is perfect, but rather as a means of being present in the obsession and joy of rearrangement. To be perfectly busy in the magical mess of making words do whatever suits his fancy, releasing them into the ether. And away we go making a kind of chaos, making up his own Pompeii, which so many years later, relating to Michael Gilmore about the release of Love and Theft on 9-11, he says he'd always felt like he was walking around in a kind of Pompeii anyways. People complain that Dylan doesn't say what he means, that he's shrouded in mystery. I, I disagree. He does exactly what he says in the very first line of Tarantula. Aretha, crystal jukebox queen of him and him, diffused in drunk transfusion, wound would heed, sweet sound, wave crippled, and cry salute to, O oh, great particular Eldorado real, and ye battered personal god, but she cannot, she the leader of whom, when ye follow, she cannot, she has no back, she cannot. Okay, it used to go like that. You can also read it like this. Aretha, crystal jukebox, queen of him. She's the ultimate song and singer, a mythic figure, untouchable like a godhead. And him diffused in drunk transfusion wound. It's Dylan as the singer from Blind Willie McTell, feeling the wound of all life and wounded himself and struggling to find what he would experience as authentic when nothing is authentic. Would heed sweet sound wave crippled and cry salute to O great particular Eldorado real, to the real, which he writes R-E-E-L. Life like a movie. He wishes that he could believe in just music, be allegiant to it, but Eldorado, that big god, that big golden thing, it's, it's just another flick, another reel of the R-E-E-L. A-L. A real thing or a real thing, but not the real thing. And ye battered personal God, yes, and everyone in their own movie, with their own allegiances, Dylan says. But she cannot, she the leader of whom, when ye follow, Pilgrim's Progress, following that ye, not the anti-Semitic bozo ye, yay, or whatever he's called, of today, Asking a singer to lead is folly, even in the purest crystal form, even the purest crystal singer. Song is just a meager, if noble, attempt to capture something that cannot be captured. She cannot. She has no back. She cannot. And she is, as always, the she. There's always a she who is a she with a capital S. Johanna, Aretha, said-eyed lady of the lowlands, Sarah, a sweetheart like you, a Madonna who still has not showed. He's got no future and he's got no past, this narrator. She's got everything she needs. And he's an artist too, but no one, like Lot's wife, can ever look back. So don't look back, especially not for her. At least that's one way of reading it, the opening lines of Tarantula. Or not. Read it your own way. Take your own Dylan Rorsach test, like reading the remains of Pompeii 
like rearranging faces frozen for a nanosecond forever, but giving them another name. Creating chaos with words pushed to limits, with humor and flair and goofiness and skill, and then letting them speak for themselves. That's Dylan's style in music, too. And that's the spirit of what's happening in Chronicles as well, but with a twist. We have, of course, talked before about Dylan and St. Augustine, but there's something more to say about how one of Dylan's most wonderful cultural religious cameos relates to him as a writer. Before we get to that technique that we led with, let's talk a little bit more about this writer's intent. Searching for the very souls whom already have been sold. Arise, arise, he cried so loud with a voice without restraint. Come out, ye gifted kings and queens. And hear my sad complaint No martyr is among ye now Whom ye can call your own But go on your way accordingly But know you're not alone refresh your memories. Dylan's narrator in I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine from the album John Wesley Harding enters a salvational drama. He holds a sad complaint, right? He cannot be a martyr. Augustine taunts the dreamer, tearing through these quarters in the utmost misery. These quarters, all four of them, in fact, are the dreamer's heart. He's dressed in gold, religious icon, animated in real time. Augustine strikes at the gifted kings and queens who, despite their good intentions, cannot attain the ultimate gift of salvation, not even with a figure of religious greatness in their mists. The dreamer's soul has already been sold, and he is condemned to isolation and inaction. St. Augustine, alive with fiery breath. And I dreamed I was amongst the ones that put him out to death. Oh, I awoke in anger, so alone and terrified. I put my fingers against the glass and bowed my head and Now, when it comes to martyrs who haunt his musical dreams, Dylan has a lot to say, a lot to feel, a lot to confess to. Based on the topic returning as often as it does, he feels he has a lot to live up to. The results in his lyrics betray self-judgment and disappointment in his managing of his own lot. His narrator and joker man, for example, singing of being a friend to those who give their lives for a cause, but his interests clash with this 
kind of benevolence or sacrifice or martyrdom. He holds up this standard as a purpose for as high as anything that he knows and describes it quite vividly, and yet he comes up short. Let's think about Augustine's practice as a writer, not just as a model to which Dylan compares himself. Augustine's legacy in the literature of the world is that he's said to have produced the first full-scale confessional autobiography, or memoir, which is aptly called Confessions. And it's written at the end of the fourth century. In some ways, those tears and the longings and the sense of missing pieces and gazing out at the world and the self, that Confessions of Augustine sounds strikingly like elements of Chronicles and certainly as capsulized in I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. These are themes that Dylan explores in all his songs that he writes about, the songs he listens to. It's how he thinks and feels. It's his confessions. That's what happens in Chronicles. It's about the unexpected things that happen in the life of an artist along the way. He bears his soul in a certain way. He confesses telling us how does it feel. But he doesn't tell us all the way. He's not like Augustine. He's not a martyr. He does not, will not, cannot let us all the way in as Augustine tries to confess and to do. We never get the whole story in Chronicles because Dylan's still a performer. He's not a holy man and he's not a priest. He's an artist. Streets of broad are filled with rubble. Ancient footprints are everywhere. Well, you could almost think that you see in double. Like the lives of the most excellent painters, sculptors, and architects, a collection of artist biographies written by Italian painter and architect Giorgio Vasari in the 16th century, Chronicles is also a kind of art history book, a story of how Dylan works and comes to be as an artist at different phases of his career. But it's also unclear if it's sincere, like confessions, or is meant to explain the artist historically and technically, like Vasari tries to do. How much is honest appraisal, review, and recollection? And how much is a hustle? My Life in a Stolen Moment written as a mythic manifesto of where Dylan came from and how he came to be in 1962, it doesn't tell the truth, and it presents in a kind of youthful sincerity something that's not sincerely true. There is a house down in New Orleans They call the rising sun 
been the ruin of many poor girls and me. Borrowing and stealing from yourself and others. It's it's Dylan's middle name. He steals from other people's truths, like he stole from Dave Von Ronk's version of The House of the Rising Sun, later eclipsed by the animals. He makes up other truths out of other people's truths. This is the life of this kind of artist, the complex dynamic of how he works by actually being in the skin of someone else or working in the skin of someone else. And this is a pathway to understanding Dylan's work and importance that will travel with Griel Marcus next time. Now, Joni Mitchell once sang that she was a lonely painter living in a box of paints. Chronicles reveals so much about how Dylan lives in his own box of paints. But even his confessional nature keeps himself hid, stealing moments and telling you tales that are tall to build a myth, telling you how it's done like a magician, explaining his trick, even though you still don't quite get it, rearranging faces and names, never martyring himself and blowing up conventions that he creates about himself, it's all a part of what spins the wheels of Chronicles. Scott Wormuth, who we interviewed in the first part of this season of the podcast, explained Dylan and the Box. Dylan is the artist who collects scraps of everything and willfully repurposes them into his own counter-narrative as narrative. It's like Chronicles in the Bible stealing the texts of the books of the Holy Writ that came before it to retell biblical history for its own editorial purposes. Scott Warmoth writes of Chronicles wonderfully and cogently and clearly, and you should see his Pinterest page for the full treatment he gives to, to Chronicles and so many other topics. Run, don't walk to read Scott's article in the Dylan Review entitled Bob Charlatan Deconstructing Dylan's Chronicles, Volume 1. Scott begins that article like this. When Dylan's memoir Chronicles, Volume 1 was released in 2004, it received overwhelmingly positive reviews. Dylan's recollections came off as disarmingly personal. The use of language in his prose was said to be as distinctive and captivating as it is in his songs. But over the past several years and loose collaboration with Edward Cook of Washington, D.C., I have been giving Chronicles a closer look. Ed is, among other things, an editor of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation. Deciphering and translating are his business. But he is also a Bob Dylan fan and blogger. He first posted about borrowings in Chronicles, Volume 1, from Mark Twain, Marcel Proust, and Jazzman Mez Mezzero's 1946 autobiography, Really the Blues, later posted about borrowings from Jack London and even Sax Romer, creator of Dr. Fu Manchu. And together, Ed and I have found in Chronicles an author, Bob Dylan, who has embraced camouflage to an astounding degree in a book that is meticulously fabricated, with one service concealing another from cover to cover. Dozens upon dozens of quotations and anecdotes incorporated from other sources, Dylan has hidden many puzzles, jokes, and secret messages, secondary meanings, and bizarre subtexts in his book. After many months of research, my copy of Chronicles Volume 1 is drenched in highlighter and filled with marginalia, and I have a thigh-high stack of books, short stories, and periodicals that Dylan drew from to work his autobiographical alchemy. To wit, 
Dylan borrows from American classics and travel guides, fiction and nonfiction about the Civil War, science fiction, crime novels, both Thomas Wolfe and Tom Wolfe, Hemingway, books on photography, songwriting, Irish music, soul music, and a book about the art of the sideshow banner. He dipped into both a book favored by 19th century occult society and a book about the Lewinsky scandal by showgirl screenwriter Joe Esterhaus. That's Scott Wormuth. Run, don't walk to read the full piece in the Dylan Review. But don't panic. Don't panic that this mad scientist approach to cobbling together an original text is somehow a mark of shame on Dylan's work, because quite the opposite is true. Not only did Dylan rearrange faces and words and give them all another name, he changed the way he works, if not completely, to embrace another kind of devious genius, a genius as old as the Bible. And here, since Dylan invited us to the comparison by calling his book Chronicles, Chronicles Volume 1, no less, we turn to the Bible yet again. More specifically, a modern way of understanding the authorship of the world's best-selling book, which, while controversial at the time of its blooming as an academic theory in the 19th century, is now widely accepted not only as a standard for understanding authorship of the New and Old Testaments, but also large chunks of sacred texts spanning across world traditions, including those Dead Sea Scrolls that Scott Warmoth mentioned in his article in the Dylan Review. We're talking about the documentary Hypothesis Blues, and it goes something like this. Late in the 19th and early 20th century, German scholar Julius Wellhausen demonstrated that the Pentateuch, or the Hebrew Bible, or shall we say... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is comprised of four preceding works with four separate schools of authorship. The Jawist, known as J, the Elohist, known as E, the Deuteronomist, known as D, and the Priestly, or P, sources or authors. Over 500 years or more, like a giant jigsaw puzzle, or endless array of samples covering a single somewhat repetitive, at times messy, but seminal magnum opus by redactors or editors that collectively wanted one single holy writ that would eventually come to be understood by the rabbis of late antiquity and the Christians and the Muslims and so many more as the direct decree of God. This was the work described by the documentary hypothesis. It's an assemblage project, the Bible is. Imagining how this fact of assemblage casts a shadow on literal readings, literal readings not even in the original language of the Bible, no less, around issues like homosexuality or abortion or who's chosen as the quote-unquote chosen people today could make you crazy to truly dig into the sources and the generations of the biblical authorship brings one to question any literal reading of a religious text. And yet this text, as flawed and brilliant as the human vessels that made it may be, it's still holy. But it's not necessarily true the way a true believer, without this perception of its assemblage, might Now, without belaboring the point, if it's good enough and weird enough and collaborative enough for a structure like this to make the Holy Bible, 
which is humanity's number one hit with a bullet. Too many bullets, I might add. Well, then it's got to be good enough for Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan's readers, too. We talked about these concepts a lot in season one in a chapter called The Art of Memory, and Richard Thomas and Robert Polito, amongst others, have spoken of this concept brilliantly as well. Dylan as a master of memory, Dylan as a collector, a repurposer of faces and names, of works and books, of art, of content of all kinds. For Dylan, it's not the biblical authorship schools like J-E-D-P and the more recently discovered Q, but it's Mark Twain, Marcel Proust, Mez Mesereau, Jack London, and even the author of Dr. Fu Manchu. That's Chronicles for you. Chronicles reflected through the lens of the biblical chronicles as a retelling with a wink and a nod of the story that's both hidden and revealed by its author. Who says you can't relive the past? Of course you can. A reverie on unexpected periods from Dylan's creative life, Chronicles is both personal and removed, made up and tender, close and far away. The present is a continuation of that past. Days and nights are long, words and faces co-opted and reassembled, myths scrambled, the up close and personal of martyrdom avoided, tricks up sleeves vanish even when he tells you how it's done. Chronicles like Tarantula is a wonderful game of taking a chance on what memory even means. And it's wonderful art too, especially for Dylan's five believers. Altogether, Chronicles is the book that it is because of what it is not. It's honest and it's tricky to a fault. It's unconcerned with history or even authorship. It's both a hustle and a reflection of deep feeling. And that's the rock and roll bookshelf for you. That's rock and roll. All of those elements of holiness and hustle. That's rock and roll. We are lost and lonely people And we're looking for a reason and it's alright So let's celebrate the dreamers We embrace the space between us Cause it's alright And it's alright We can make the whole thing better But the authors of forever And it's alright This has been Chapter 6 of Season 3 of Bob Dylan About Man and God and Law Next time, we will read The greatest Dylan writer of them all Except for Dylan That's Greal Marcus it's Dylan book month slash months all month. Maybe part of the next month. Check out my book about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, wherever books are sold. Leave a review. Have fun. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Come see and listen to all of our great podcasts for music lovers at pantheonpodcasts.com. 
I am off Twitter because it's littered with evil despite the good intentions of many. Visit the slightly less compromised Metaverse Facebook page at ManGodLawPod on Facebook or follow us at ManGodLaw.com. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.